Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Have you noticed that this world we live in is one incredibly messed up place? Oh, a lot of amens on that one, isn't it? For some reason, like the police, they always have a job, don't they? We never seem to have enough police. And like hospitals, you know they're always building bigger ones? And you ever try to get an appointment at a doctor? It's like you have to wait forever because they have more than enough work to do. We can't seem to make enough doctors or prepare enough doctors because there's so much sickness on our planet. Did you ever look at our national budget? What do we spend most of our money on? I think it's defense, isn't it? Is it defense? We have to spend all this money on defense because people from around the world want to kill us. Like, this world is one messed up place. You buy a new car and it has a lock. You get a new house, it has a key. You look at the evening news, and what is it? It's like a long, constant string of chaos, disaster, divorce, hatred, cheating, scandals, murder. I mean, honestly, guys, I don't even watch Fox News anymore. It is too depressing. Anybody else feel that same way? It's one piece of chaos and disorder and destruction after another. And everything inside us goes like, this is wrong. <laughs> this is so wrong. This is not the way life was meant to be. And today, we're going to find out what happened. We're going to find out why this world is such an incredibly messed up place and what the solution is. There's one solution to all the problems. If you're new, I'd like to welcome you. My name is Kurt, and I am one of the pastors at Crosswinds. And as a church, we are teaching our way through the book of Genesis. And we haven't gotten that far in this book. We covered Genesis chapter 1, which was like a tour de force on God's awesome power that He made, it says, the entire creation, not just earth, but everything on earth and everything in the entire universe in six literal days by only His spoken word. God is incredibly awesome and incredibly powerful. And we like tremble at His might when we see Genesis chapter 1. And last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 2, where we go from God's awesome power to His incredible undeserved love. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we find that the same God who creates His entire universe bends down and it says literally that He hand sculpts Adam, that He kisses Adam with his lips to give him the breath of life. And Adam is like the pinnacle of his creation. And then he takes Adam and he puts him in the best place on the planet, a place called Eden. He gives him the, the, totally the best meal plan ever created, which is all you can eat, free fruit, right? And then he gives him a job and he saves his last gift, which is his best gift. What is his last and his best gift for Adam? Men, what is it? Eve, the wife, right? So everything is really good on planet Earth. Adam's a happily married man. He has a job. He has free fruit. He has a great place to live. He has great accommodations. Everything is well. What happens is Genesis chapter 3. 
In Genesis chapter 3, everything falls apart. Now, you need to understand that Genesis chapter 3 is one of the most important chapters in your Bible. And it's often underpreached because if you do not understand Genesis 3, you will blame all the problems in the world on something else. You'll say, the reason that we have this problem is because we don't have enough government funding. The reason that we don't have this problem is because I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. I grew up in a bad neighborhood. And you'll blame it on everybody else. There is one problem, and Genesis chapter 3 identifies it. And interestingly, as I said earlier, it will also identify the one solution. Now, this message, as I wrote it, I have to tell you, I found Genesis chapter 3 fascinating. I prepared about 20 pages in notes. Uh, and I'm not going to give you all 20 pages. And the reason I wrote so much is because there's so much important stuff in this chapter that we often miss. So what I'm going to do, so to compress this thing down so we can actually get this done in the time allotted, I'm going to skip forward a little bit in your notes. I'm going to pick up uh, to the bottom of the first page of your notes where it says, how did sin enter the human race and infect the world? So we're going to pick up there. And we're just going to start with the text of Genesis and work through all 24 verses. I'm going to stop and comment as we go along the way. So here we go. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent, he was more crafty than any of the other beasts in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Oh, by the way, you need to understand that this is not your ordinary common variety snake in the garden at this point. We know from Revelations chapter 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 4, and 12, verse 9, and chapter 20, verse 1, that this snake was influenced by or possessed by an incredibly powerful spiritual being called Satan. And so this is Satan coming to earth, and he is going to tempt Eve to sin. He's already sinned at this point. Somewhere between Genesis 1:31, where God created everything and He's done with creation and it's all good, and Genesis 3, chapter 1. Somewhere in here, Satan has fallen into sin. And here's how he starts temptation with Eve. And I want you to look at this. He said to her, did God really say you could not eat from any fruit, in, not eat from any tree in the garden? Crosswinds Church, is that what God said? No. no. We learn, Genesis chapter 2, God is incredibly good, incredibly kind, incredibly loving, given Adam the, and Eve the best place on the planet. All you can eat free fruit. In fact, God has said, you know, guys, have at it. Have a good time. Eat from any tree on planet Earth except from one. I mean, how much better can it get? One tree on the globe you have to avoid. But see, Satan, he's a spin doctor. He's, he's the original spin doctor. And what he wants to do is he wants them to think about it in a different way. He says, no, no, no. God's mean. He's harsh. He really doesn't want you eating from any trees in the garden. What he wants Eve to do is start to focus on the one thing she can't have as opposed to all the good things she does have. Isn't that the way Satan starts with temptation for us? He wants us to focus on the one thing we don't have 
instead of all the good things we do have. Uh, perhaps you're somebody who's young, somebody who's single, and you see your, your friends, and, and they're married, and they're like, they have kids, and you're not. And you're sort of bummed about it because all of a sudden you realize when people get married, it's like they sort of enter a different social circle and you don't feel like you can connect with them like they used to. And you start to get bummed about it. And you say, God, why haven't you bring, brought Mr. Right or Mrs. Right into my life? And all of a sudden, Satan wants you to be totally consumed on the one thing you don't have that God in His wisdom has not brought into your life yet. He wants you to neglect all the other good blessings. That's how Satan works. He tempts you. He deceives us in this direction. It's Genesis chapter 3 all over again. Now, let's continue with verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. All right, back to trivia, guys. Is this what God said? It's a yes and a no, right? The first part, is that what God said? Yes. The last part, is that what God said? No. The way Eve makes it sound is she could be like skipping through the garden, you know, happens to cross the tree in the middle of the garden, trips and falls, which is, by the way, something that I would likely do, happen to brush against the fruit. And God would be like, ha-ha, you've touched it, like, and fry you. What she's beginning to do is start to believe this temptation that God is harsh, that God is mean. That God's really not a nice guy and who, He doesn't really love you after all. She's making God out to be harsher than He actually is. She's adding to God's words. And by the way, don't we sort of do the same thing with those who are in authority over us pretty easily? Maybe uh, you're late for work and you're late for work a few times, and the boss calls you in to work, and the boss says to you, you know, this really can't continue, because if you're continually late for work, those can be grounds for termination of your job. And so, what do you do when you leave the boss's office? You go to the break room, and your friends say, hey, what happened to that meeting with your boss? Oh, he's such a meanie. He said, if I am ever late again, he's going to fire me. Now, is that what your boss said? No. But you see, we like to make him out to be harsher than he actually is. You twist his words and don't properly represent his words. And you, you like to impugn bad character to him. And this is sort of what Eve is doing. She's buying into this lie in her mind that God really is not out for her good. He's harsher than he actually is. This is the way temptation works. We start to believe the lie. And so since she's believing the lie, what happens is Satan says, I've got her where I want her. Let's go for the jugular. And here's what he says. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, but God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. What Satan just did at this point is he called God a liar. 
Oh, God's not telling you the truth. You will not surely die. But the Scriptures tell us, <clears throat> John eight forty four, that actually that's sort of to be expected because Satan is a liar. He's the, the father of lies. Lying is his native tongue. Satan is the original spin doctor of twisting the truth and lying. And when we look at this passage, it's sort of easy for us. We're like, all right, you know, we know God. He's been so incredibly good. Look at all the good things He's given to Adam, all the good things He's given to Eve. He's led one thing is off limits on the one tree on the planet. Satan is lying to her. Why can't she see it? It's sort of silly. How does she fall for it? But folks, don't we start to do the exact same thing? We start to believe Satan's lies, that the things that God says are off-limits. The reason He says they're off-limits, we know from Scripture, are for our good, because He loves us, because he, he wants what's best for us. But we start to believe Satan's lies, and we start to think, well, God is actually holding something back from us. God is trying to ruin our life, not protect our life. And we start to talk ourselves into believing that maybe Satan is right after all. Isn't that the way temptation works? Just me? Yeah. Now, when you step back, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? But in the moment, you start to think about it, man, if I could just give myself into that sin, it would be so much better. You know, God says, here are some forbidden fruit today. You know, do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal, do not lust, do not covet pretty clear. We say, why should we do that? But then all of a sudden, the situation comes along, and we're like, you know, I don't really have to tell the whole truth. People don't really need to know what honestly happened. I can shade it. Buying Satan's lie. Or all of a sudden, you're thinking to yourself, hmm, you know, they have some stuff. They have so much stuff. They don't need all that stuff. I need their stuff. I I'm going to take it. They don't need to know. They won't even miss it. I deserve it and need it more. What are you doing? Buying Satan's lie because you're caught up in the midst of the moment. But if you're able to step out, you can see it. That's the way temptation works. Now, interestingly, the icing on the cake to this temptation is this little phrase where Satan says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The, Satan says to you, you know, if you would just give in to the temptation, what you would discover is that God has been holding you back. God is trying to d deny you of what you could become. God is trying to ruin your potential. If you would just give in to your sin, you'd be so much happier and so much better. You'd be so much more satisfied. But it's a lie. It's a lie against the very character of God, who if He says something is off limits, He always says it with our best interest at heart. Now, you can see up to this point what's happened is Eve, she's been thinking about this, she's been tempted by this, now she decides to go for it. Let's make forbidden fruit pie, is what she says. Here it comes. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, 
and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Question, where was Adam this whole time? Where was he? With her. And in case there's any question, you read in the Hebrew, when Satan is addressing Eve, he's addressing her in the plural. He is with her when she is being deceived. Does he stand up to protect her? Does he go out of his way to get rid of Satan? No. He just continues to lay on the couch with a bowl of Cheetos in, on his belly watching football. This is what Adam is doing. He is abdicating his responsibility of leadership. Now, if you were here last week, we learned Adam was given two key jobs in the garden. One was to be the gardener of the garden. The other was to be the guardian of the garden. He is to make sure that he protects his wife, he protects his home, and he protects the reputation of his God in this place that is his home. Did he do that? Absolutely not. He didn't step to the plate, what, at all. Now, men, I want to talk to you because many of us are just like Adam. And by that I mean that we do not take leadership in our home. What we do is we step back and figure, you know, my wife is her own woman. She, she can do what she wants. If she makes a mess in her life, well, she's just going to have to deal with it and clean up after herself. You know, I'm not going to tell her what to do. And when you act that way, you are being just like Adam. You're falling into the sin of Adam, of abdicating your leadership responsibility. Your role, husbands, is to protect your wife, protect your children, protect your family. This is one of the major sins that men fall into, not being leaders and not being protectors. Many women think this. They think, well, you know what? The Scripture, well, many people, I guess I should say in general, they think the Bible says there's really just two options here. Either men are leaders of their home or women are leaders of their home. That's the option that they, people put forward. That's not the option. Because um, husbands, if you are not a leader of your home, and the wife says, you know what? Because my husband's not a leader of the home, I'm going to assume leadership in the home. You know who starts celebrating? Satan. Because that's exactly the way he wants it. The husband passive and the wife taking control over top of him because that's backwards to the creation order. The husband was put in charge and his wife was created as a helpmate suitable to him, not inferior to him at all, just given a different role. He was given the role of being the guardian for her. Now, wives, some of you have husbands who are acting like Adam. They're passive. They're not being a leader at home. And you say, well, what should I do? My husband's not leading. He's not taking responsibility for our family. He's not taking spiritual responsibility. So I need to step to the plate. No, you don't. What you need to do is step to your husband. And you tell him, 
that these roles are not arbitrary. These roles are not reversible. These are God-given roles in Genesis in the creation account. You need to step to the plate. You need to protect me. You need to provide spiritual leadership in our home and provide spiritual leadership for our children. If I take that role away from you, it will actually be to the detriment of our children and our home. Step to the plate. That's what you tell him to do. Because this is exactly what he's supposed to be doing and not being passive. Next verse. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. By the way, this is an extremely ineffective undergarment. Try fig leaves through the wash. They don't even make it through once. You know, but notice they go from being naked without shame to being naked and filled with shame. And their response is I have to cover up. I have to hide myself. You can't see the real me anymore. Isn't that what sin does? When you sin, don't you feel filled with shame? Don't you feel filled with guilt? And what do you want to do? Hide. Hide yourself from people. Now, what are we supposed to do when we sin? Confess. Husbands and wives, you're in, a real, you're in your marriage and all of a sudden the husband sins against his wife by maybe something he does at work or something he looks at on the internet. What does he do? I'm not going to tell her. I'm going to cover that up. But that acts like a foothold of Satan in your life. It does. What you need to do to cure that is confess that sin to your wife and, and be open and honest and ask forgiveness, not hide from her. This idea of, uh, of making your, hiding from each other, it's not going to work. Let me give you an example of who are the biggest offenders of fig leaves? Like the biggest fig leaf wearers out there. It's church people. It's us, isn't it? Because what happens is I find this out during the week, that people are going through really tough times in their life. Difficult, difficult stuff is going on. But when they come to church, smile face, Go to the coffee bar. How are you doing? Oh, everything is just so wonderful. Life is grand. Oh, you know, you get that little plastic thing going on, you know. And as soon as you walk out the door, you, you sit down in the driver's seat and your head falls in your hands and you're broken. You say, I, I can't tell anybody what's really going on in my life. I have to keep hiding. No. Folks, that's a sinful response to sin. Don't hide. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The great part of being about a church family is, guess what, guys? We're a family. If you can't be real with family, who can you be real with? True? So be open, be honest, and get help and encouragement. Now, we talked about how sin entered the world. Let's talk about how Adam and Eve respond to sin once it's in their life. And what we're going to find is there are sinful responses to sin. There's a right way to handle your sin and a wrong way to handle your sin. And trust me, it's a tour de force on how to wrongly handle your sin when you look at Adam and Eve.
Let's look at this. They, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, to me, this is comical. Think about this. You have Adam with a fig leaf, you know, and he is going to hide behind a tree. So hopefully the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God who just created the universe in six days with only His Word will not see Him. Do you think this is an effective avoidance strategy? Absolutely not. No, what Adam should have done is not hid from God. He should have run to God and said, God, I was supposed to be the guardian. I was supposed to protect my wife. I was supposed to keep her from being deceived. But I didn't. I botched up. By the way, just so you know, this is a little interesting aside. Uh, the Scriptures say that Eve was deceived into sin, but Adam chose to go into sin. Like, Eve was tricked. Adam wasn't. He should have run to God and confessed, but instead he hides from God. Isn't that a sinful response to sin? Hide from God? Folks, what happened then is happening now. Just like Adam and just like Eve, we're tempted to sin. Just like Adam and just like Eve, we believe Satan's lies that lure us into sin. What do we do when we sin? You can hide from each other, which is a sinful response, or you can confess and ask forgiveness to each other. You can hide from God, but it's a futile thing. Run to God. Trust me, God already knows it. and He loves you. Look at His character. He's waiting to forgive. Folks, some of you do not realize how all omniscient and incredibly powerful God is. Kids, sometimes I see this, you know, mom's not home, and you have the cookie jar, so you go to the cookie jar and, like, take a cookie, and you say, no one's going to know that one is God. Who knows? God, He knows you stole from the cookie jar. Ladies, you get real frustrated, and what happens when you get frustrated? You want to talk about it, right? And you're like, the person I'm frustrated with does not have a Facebook account, so where do you go to vent your frustrations? Facebook, and you tell everybody else, and you're like, it's okay because the person I'm mad at won't know about it. I've got news for you. God has universal Facebook. He's already your friend. He knows exactly what you're saying. And guess what? He's also got your phone tapped. He's listening to your phone calls. He's reading all of your text messages. And I heard just recently, God even got access to Hillary Clinton's secret email server. Trust me, He knows everything. Don't run from Him. That's a sinful response. Run to Him. Look at His character from Genesis chapter 2. He's incredibly good and kind. And as we're going to see in a moment, He's so loving, He sent His own Son to die for us. Don't respond to sin the wrong way. And by the way, here's something interesting. Oh, 
Who sinned first that we can tell? Who did, who did uh, Satan tempt? Eve. Who gets called to the carpet first? Adam. Why? Because he's the head over his family. Men, you need to understand that you are the head of your family and you are responsible for your family. Now, what guys like to do is we love to make excuses, don't we? We say, well, that was my wife's choice. She did it. She has to live with the consequences. <laughs> That's an excuse. Stop making excuses. Start taking responsibility. Your children, your child makes a bad choice at school, makes a sinful choice at school. And what do you like to say? Well, you know, that's not me. That's my kid. It's their choice. No, it's your responsibility. Your responsibility as the head of the house is to step to the plate and take care of it and address it and make sure it's handled properly. Guys, don't think you can step to the side. You are responsible for the spiritual temperature of your home, not your wife. She is only your helpmate. Now, guys, is there a quiet time in your home? Is there a family Bible reading in your home? Is there a prayer time in your home? And I know what you're going to say. Oh, I can't do it. My job is too busy. My wife, she usually takes care of that, but she's too busy. And my kids have sports all the time. Are you making an excuse or are you taking responsibility? Men, it is our job to make sure our children are discipled. We have to figure out a way to jury-rig the schedule and take responsibility. This is why God talks to Adam first. Guys, you're the head of your house. There's no way to escape it. The story continues. And by the way, this is one of my favorite sections here. So this is, gets interesting. Look how Adam responds after he gets caught. Adam says, and he said, who, or actually God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man says, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree. Now, Adam should have been confessing. It's like, okay, it's my fault. I'm the head of the house. I should have guarded her. I should have protected her. I wasn't doing my job. I was just eating Cheetos and watching football. It was an Iowa, Iowa State game. I didn't want to peel myself away. He doesn't do that. He blames her. It's all her fault. She made me sin. In fact, my life was wonderful until this woman came into my life. She's defective. She's the problem. God, get me a new wife. I think I married the wrong woman, which is sort of funny, but isn't that what he would typically say? I need wife 2.0 because 1.0 is defective. She serves forbidden fruit pie. He blames her. He avoids taking responsibility for his sin. And guys... This is one of our typical sinful responses to sin. Don't we like to blame shift? The problems of sin, we like to blame on somebody else. It's our schedule. It's where we grew up. It's our temperament. 
It's our loneliness. It's what somebody did to me that made me mad. You know, I can see Adam saying, I was a really nice guy until she brought this out in me. The reality is, it's Adam's fault, not her fault. In fact, if you notice, he doesn't just blame Eve, but who else does he blame? God. God forgiving this woman to her, to him rather. Now, one chapter earlier, he was singing her praises, right? One chapter later, it's all her fault. He's blame shifting. Guys, when we make a mistake and we blame shift it to others, and when we sin and we blame shift it to others, here's the real problem. When you blame shift it to somebody else, you really can't get forgiven of it, and you really can't fix it. Do you realize that? If the reason that you are making the choices you're making is because of what somebody else does to you, then the control is in their hands, not your hands. And if the control and the reason is in their hands, how can you confess their sin for them? All you can confess is your sin. How can you ask God to change you when it's really all about them? You see, the best thing you can do, men, is take responsibility for your sin. Ask God to forgive you for your sin and change you from the inside out. It's a very tricky thing when you try and blame it on someone else and a very bad thing to do. Let's look at her response. She's sort of fun, too. Eve's response, and the woman said to the serpent, well, we may, Oops, I'm sorry, I flipped on the wrong page. Correction. There we go. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Eve is like the original Pentecostal woman here. It's the devil's fault. The devil made me do it. That's the reason. Now, I have a question. Is it the devil's fault? Did the devil deceive her? Did the devil tempt her? Who ate the fruit? Eve. So the devil tempted her. The devil deceived her, but she's still responsible for her sin. The devil may tempt you. The devil may still try to deceive you. But if we sin, who's responsible? We are. And once again, when she blames it on the devil, once again, the idea is that she doesn't have any ability to, like, own it, and she can't be forgiven of it. She can't be healed it. By giving it to somebody else, she removes her ability to be healed and strengthened and restored. So, folks, don't blame your sin on somebody else. Don't blame your sin on the devil. Don't blame your sin on God own your sin, ask for forgiveness of your sin, God is incredibly loving, incredibly kind, incredibly merciful. Remember, He sent His own Son to die for you. It can't be more loving and merciful than that. Trust on the mercy of Jesus. So we've looked at how sin entered the world. We looked at the sinful responses of Adam and Eve in the world. Now let's look at the consequences of sin. And this is a very interesting study. What are the consequences of sin? First of all, let's look at the consequence of sin for Satan. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And notice this last part. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, it's very clear. This last part about he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, the Hebrew is clear. It's talking about one particular individual male offspring of Eve will crush Satan's head. In the midst of it, he will be bruised, but who's going to come off victorious? He will. Now, I'm going to give you a little guess as to who you think this might be. Who do you think it is, Crosswinds? Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, 16 through 19 says this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us this. This is Jesus. And isn't this what happened? Wasn't Jesus bruised? And boy, what is a nasty bruising. The Scriptures say in Isaiah that before He was even crucified, He was beaten to the point of dis beaten beyond recognition. They couldn't even tell if he was a human being anymore when he was crucified. And then he died, the most hideous form of death known to man. And then as he died, God took the sins of you and me, and they placed him on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ cried in our place for our sin out of God's incredible love for us to take our place of the punishment that we deserved. But here's the neat part. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. But Jesus on the third day rose from the grave in power and victory. And when He rose from the grave, at that point, who had a good head crushing? Satan. Folks, a good head crushing is like a completely fatal wound. This is a prophecy. It's the first prophecy of Jesus Christ. And it comes right at the moment where, um, after Satan has led Adam and Eve into sin. What I think is so incredibly cool is God should be saying to Adam and Eve, okay, you are going to be in the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels, all of you and all of your posterity forever. But he doesn't do that. He says, I'm launching a plan to save, to save you out of my kindness, goodness, and love. Now, here it gets interesting. We've looked at what the consequence of the sin was for Satan, but what was the consequence of the sin for Eve? It says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. You need to notice that these two um, curses, they influence and touch the very core role of a man and the very core role that God has given his wife. The core role of a wife is to be a mother of her children and to be the wife of her husband. And there's a measure of curse and consequence that sin has brought into it. Number one here, it says, guess what? Having children, which would be one of the most blessed things a mom does, is going to be very painful. You know, we've had three children, and when Cindy was having our first, David, um, 
David wasn't quite coming along at the, at the rate he should have come. He was three days late, which if you know David, he's a very relaxed guy, so this made total sense. Relaxed David in utero. So what they did is they said, well, we're going to give you Pitocin, and we're going to start inducing labor. And they said, well, this could make labor extremely painful. She says, okay, whatever. Well, we're going to give you an epidural, and that's going to take the pain away. So they put the epidural in, but it only did like half of her body. And then they kept cranking the Pitocin up, and it's like, oh my goodness, I, I have a very sweet and wonderful wife. But let me tell you, I've learned that labor is painful, at least on half of the body. But this isn't just referring to the moment of giving birth, but can't we say, moms, that raising children is a mixture of joy and pain? Isn't that true? Incredible joy, yet a lot of pain. How many times do I have to tell you to clean up your room? How many times do I have to tell you to put your dishes in the dishwasher? How many times? The list could go on and on, right? That's all part of the curse. The other thing that influences this is your relationship with your husband. It says your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. By the way, this doesn't mean that all of a sudden for the first time, like the wife is actually attracted to her husband. It's not talking sexual desire. It literally is talking about your husband's position of authority. Your desire will be for your husband's position of authority in the home. You will have a sinful desire not to be his helpmate, but to undermine him and to rule over him. Men, I want to just do a little audience response. When your wife starts to undermine you and rule over you, do you like it? What are you guys, all boys? Do you like it? Absolutely not. It is like nails on a chalkboard to a man when his wife is undermining him and trying to bully him and dominate him. Now, but some women think this is really sort of cool. They think the idea is I can just get control of my man and make my man do what I want. Now, what are some techniques that women use to get control of their men? And I'm not saying that everyone is like this, you know, but you ladies will affirm that this is something that you have seen. What do women like to do? Number one, nag. If I just nag him enough, I can control him. By the way, have you ever noticed that two men don't nag each other? You know why? Because if one of them, if they do that, one of them always dies. Really. Because men cannot stand nagging. Number two, well, if nagging doesn't work, then I'll go with the emotional trip. I'll start yelling, I'll get out of control, I'll, I'll just come unglued, and, you know, if I can just sort of let this tour de force of verbal power let, just overwhelm him, he'll do what I want him to do. And what happens? Most men, because hopefully they don't want to actually return the favor and yell back, because godly men will not yell back at their wives, they will keep their mouth under control, all of a sudden they want to go out to the garage, don't they, and find that little safe spot in the garage where they can get away from it? And then wives say, well, that's not working anymore. He's, he's left. So then what do they do? They go to stage three. It's called crying, right? And then what does he do? He comes back in, oh, I'm sorry, honey. And you get control after all. And so what happens is, is sometimes men go through this ping-pong relationship back and forth, and finally at the end he's like, okay, whatever you want. Peace at any price. Now, ladies, I'm not saying that every single woman is like this all the time. But you know there's a grain of truth in everything I just said. Isn't that true? 
Because what happens is that's a way that sometimes women like to take control of their husband and force him and bully him around. And here's the downside. Number one, if you start to force him and bully him around and you don't function as a helpmate, but you try and replace his leadership in the home, you will not be attracted to him. Because what you are attracted to is a man who's strong, a man who's courageous, a man who is a leader in your home and who protects you, like Adam should have done for Eve. The other thing that happens is when your husband needs to step to the plate and he needs to protect the family and say, Satan has showed up at my doorstep. Get out of this house and don't try and seduce and trick my wife. You know what he'll do? He won't step to the plate. He'll hide behind you. That's not what you want. So don't try and discourage his leadership in your home. Encourage him to be a godly, strong man. This is what sin does. Sin influences a wife to make her try and undermine her husband. How does sin influence a man? Once again, it goes after his core role. Not his only role, but his core role. Let's read this. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The core role of the husband is to be the worker, to be the provider. Remember in Eden, he's on this free all-you-can-eat food club with free fruit. Uh, but now God says, you can't stay in Eden because you have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't have you eating of the tree of life, otherwise you'll live forever. You're kicked out. And instead of getting free food, he has to plant the corn. He has to water the corn. He has to harvest the corn. He has to grind the corn. He has to bake the corn. And this is all before combines. John Deere has not been invented yet. Case IH is not around. I mean, this is a lot of work to get a loaf of bread that is only this big. Farmers, every one of you has a job because of Adam's sin. That's the honest truth. So the deal is that you have to work the ground, and it's extremely hard. So when you go to work, guys, and work is really frustrating and difficult, thank Adam. That's a consequence of the curse. And by the way, the, the interesting part is no longer can you like just stand there and hold your ground. If you do nothing, the ground will take over you. It talks about thorns and thistles and weeds. Isn't this what happens? If you do nothing to your garden, what takes over? Thorns and thistles and weeds. So you have to constantly be working not just to take ground, but to even hold ground. And this is not just true in your garden. Isn't this true of like everything else in life? You get a car. You do nothing and it does what? Rusts. Falls apart. You see, sin didn't just affect Adam and Eve, but it affected all of creation. Cancer, sickness, 
death, depression, confusion, all part of sin and how it affects the creation. Now, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, hoping they would become like God, and the result is they became the exact opposite of God. From dust you will taken, to dust you shall return. You're going to become mulch. You're going to become fertilizer. It's about as ungodlike as you can become. Thankfully, there's the promise. There's the promise that one day there will be a descendant of Eve who will come and reverse everything and crush Satan's head. I have a question for you. Where are you? It's the same question that God asked Adam when he went looking for him. Where are you, Adam? Except I want to slightly rephrase it. Where are you with Jesus? Because we talked all about sin, but God sent His Son to crush Satan's head. The problem in the world is always sin. Every single problem is related to sin. And the only solution to sin is Jesus Christ. Where are you at with Him? You know, you're either going to spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. <laughs> you either have a close relationship with God or you have no relationship with God. There is no middle ground because there's one solution to sin, and it's Jesus. In a moment, as we close, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to talk about the, the body of Christ that was shed for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And as we do, if you have already trusted in Jesus Christ to solve the problem of sin, or if today is the first time that you want to confess your sin and stop hiding to get from God and trust Jesus Christ, I invite you to take communion with us to celebrate God's great victory over this one incredible problem of everything else that went wrong in the world. Dear Jesus, we thank You so much that even though we spent time looking at sin and how it affects all of our relationships and how it affects marriage and how it affects our temperaments and how we respond to it poorly, we look to the one place that's a solution, Jesus Christ, and we celebrate that today. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.